We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Without the virus, Trump wins easily. Like, that's unambiguous. But, like, um, he has fucked his response to the virus. Um, and, like, he has fired his campaign manager. Um, but they have, like... I've got a suspicion they're kind of going to, like, get their shit more together. I, I think that now that Biden is actually campaigning... Um, like, now that Biden is out of his basement and he actually has to say, like, why he's good as opposed to, like, why Trump's bad and there are only lines for that are just fucking, like, um, got empathy. No, you don't. Fuck off. Like, you're a politician. None of them have empathy. Fuck off. My kid died. That yeah. seems to be his name. My kid died. Don't, I don't care. <laughs> Old dead kid Joe. Like, I don't care. Loser. Yeah. <laughs> Joe's kid Owned. died. Very bad. Can't even raise a child to fucking adulthood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's just a completely like wrong-headed way to fucking think about it. Like, yeah, yeah. it's um. I mean, we were talking. Um, well, a couple of us were talking like uh, today about doing a watch party um, for the U.S. election and how like depressing but also oddly relaxing and liberating it'll be to do a watch party for an election where you have no hope either way <laughs> like <laughs> there's no like corbyn or, or sanders there's candidate no that you're rooting for of a good outcome. yeah it's, it's like, like oh it sucks either way i'll just you know sit back and watch whoever <laughs> wins we lose because either way someone i don't like is gonna get owned yeah like that's, that's the well, silver exactly lining and i can't decide who i want to get owned more like mm. i think i have more emotional investment in the democrats getting owned because i feel really like upset over what they did to Sweet Bernie still, um, and they deserve to get owned for that. But on the other hand, like, it'd be pretty bad to have four more years of Trump. And Trump is like definitely like increasingly an overt fascist. Like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like that's hard. You can't just ignore that. Yeah. Um. So I feel very glad that I have no ability to influence this election. And Except for exactly one vote in California. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, California doesn't count. Thank God I'm not in any kind of swing state. Um, yeah, I know, right? Like, yeah. In- is bizarre how that works. Um, yeah, it would be much funnier to watch Democrats get owned. Like it was incredibly funny to watch in twenty sixteen. Like yeah. hilarious. Yeah. The only thing, like I've been saying for years that like if Trump loses, he'll like push back very hard and not accept his loss, and it'll be like the the spark of like some violence. You know, who knows to what extent? And so to some extent. I want that to happen so I can be right, that that doesn't feel like a super moral position. Exactly. That's how I feel as well. But I don't think he will. I don't think he cares enough about being president to push back on it. I think he would just like, definitely publicly he would be a super sore loser, but I think a big part of him would be relieved just to be able to go back to being on Twitter all day and not having any responsibility. I mean, he'd definitely tweet about how it was rigged and like the Democrats hacked the election much as the democrats when they lost the election they just just said that the election was hacked by russians like there's no kind of of, and like certainly if biden loses they'll say that again they'll just blame the russians there's no kind of hope either way of anyone accepting that the result of the election is like also because the fucking the pandemic's gonna massively fuck with it yeah that's true i mean that's like i kind of see biden losing as comeuppance for fucking bernie but I know that it's actually worth keeping in mind that, like, the Democrats will not learn any kind of lesson from it. It's going to be so fascinating to me if they do lose this election and then, like, 
it'll because it'll be an exact replay of 2020. Mm-hmm. Right. But sorry, of 2016. Yeah. <laughs> but with time is a flat circle. Like the massive dis- like the massive distinction that now there's been four years of people just screaming at them that they have to do something differently. Mm-hmm. Like now they can't say they weren't warned because everyone has been saying for four years, well, you can't just do the same thing you did last time because you'll get the same result. And like, you know, clearly they have done that. And it's kind of clear that if they lose, they'll spend the next four years just doing the exact same thing, mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. as the Australian Labor Party has done, which is they'll just keep losing and just keep doing the same thing and just keep losing and just keep doing the same thing. And Until, be like, like, eventually, like, like just sheer tiredness of, like, Howard, for example, like, last long enough for, like, some, like, ble- brief moment to kind of change for, like, a few years before it goes back to the same pattern again. Yeah. Yep. Well, you had it here, f- here first. Trump will <laughs> probably lose. I don't know. You're in the <laughs> Trump losers. Genuinely lo- don't know. So, Matt doesn't know. Declan's in the Trump losers. Uh, no, sorry, Trump, Trump wins. wins. I'm sorry. Trump wins uh, category. I'm also in the don't know, but I am leaning towards Trump wins because partly because that's the position I always held. And I just feel like Biden is so unexciting. Like, you know, because of um, uh uh, voluntary or like non-compulsory voting like you have to convince people to vote for you in a pandemic in a pandemic and joe, i just don't see that happening with joe biden so yeah we'll see i'm yeah. kind of cautiously leaning towards that outcome at the moment but um anything could happen we're still good two and a bit months away so well i think to some extent it's not even that they're like campaigning badly necessarily like just watching joe biden's speech it's not that it's not that he'd like performs terribly or it's not even that it's a terribly written speech but there's so many things that they just can't say because Mm -hmm. they can't because people know that obama was president for eight years and people know that like all of these problems were still very much going on under obama and so they're about running on just obama too which means that they can't actually commit to solving any of the problems that obama didn't solve do you think so though because i feel like they are perfectly happy to um, mention these problems, but try and pretend it's just a Trump problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good, but that's like their only strategy they can have. They're like, according to their own rules, they're like locked out of actually like promising anyone anything because mm-hmm. you can always just say, well, Obama didn't solve that, so why will you? He tried. Yeah. At least he tried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the discourse is going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, should we actually, should we get into what we're meant to be podcasting about? Yeah, yeah I reckon we should. Let's <laughs> okay, do it. Cool. Uh, so we are back for another floodcast on conspiracy theories, um, which is something that we've been wanted, wanting to talk about for a while, I think. And Matt uh, wrote uh, a piece which we put up on the Flood website earlier this week uh, on conspiracy theories and how they kind of intersect with the world of politics um, and what the kind of rise of conspiratorial thinking on both the left and right sort of signifies in the political realm. So let's talk a bit about that and then also kind of dig into some of the more heinous crimes of the CIA. Um, don't know if we're going to be able to fit that in, in one podcast, but we'll give it a go. Maybe we'll do two. Um, so, yeah, Matt, did you want to kick us off just talking about, um, yeah, basically what your interest in this and what you think... What you know? Why you think we we should be discussing this kind of thing? So this, yeah. So I've always kind of had an obsession with conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, 
actually wrote a novel about them. Yeah, right. Um, Where can we buy that novel? Ah, you can buy that. Um, <laughs> that's linked uh, in my Twitter bio and I think the bio of my um, flood piece as well. Yeah, we'll put it in the show description too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is something that uh, I'm trying to work out actually when I became kind of obsessed with this because it always kind of – it very much puts you in this zone when you start reading about this and start – um, trying to follow it and it very much happens that you start reading about this stuff as a joke and then you read about some more of it and then you read some more and then you slowly start being like okay hang on yeah, that's yeah. more convincing than I would like it to be I think that was my own path when I started um, listening to the Epstein stuff when that started coming out yeah. about a year ago um, so yeah and that was like a huge kind of turning point um, one of the reasons this has interested me is that I've noticed in um, like recent years a real turn on the left to conspiracy theories. And I'm thinking about a few different things, but like I'm thinking about uh, the podcast True or Non is a very big and kind of well-known example of this, mm-hmm. which is um, they start by talking about Jeffrey Epstein and um, whether or not he uh, was murdered mm-hmm. and all of the connections that he kind of has to Bill Clinton and like the Democratic Party and various other famous evil people. Um, and there's been a few more, there's a few more people I've been kind of following. Um, there's a guy I believe called Michael Judge, who has a podcast called Death is Around the Corner. Um, Why is it not called something like, I'll be the judge of that? (laughs) (laughs) It's from like a book. So it's a specific reference. Um, opportunity. Huge loser. (laughs) I I think that's his name. I should check that. Yeah. Yeah. Like who was, um, talks about, um, the Kennedy assassination and about Thomas Pynchon mm-hmm. um, and kind and the CIA and their kind of role in shaping the modern world. And I think about that because I like, um, I think this is something where it's something a lot of people on the left kind of flirt with. It's not the same as the right, the right conspiracy theory. They seem to just absolutely believe all of it. Mm. So there seems to be not this kind of, I think people on the left kind of enjoy this, like, not knowing more. And there's more of a sense of, like, ooh, is it true? Is it all bullshit? Oh, I guess we'll never know. Like, ooh, it's it's postmodern. Ooh, it's the postmodern condition. We'll never really know. And people well, on the right are just like, yeah, they did it. They're lizard people. Yeah. No, well, I was going to say, I think that um, one of the reasons that, yeah, this this conspiracy theory stuff has taken off a bit on the left in this particular form, um, and particularly thinking about Truanon and some of the stuff that Charpo has done um, around the Epstein case as well, is that it, it jibes quite well with a mode of ironic engagement. Like it is kind of what you said. You start off thinking it's a joke, and it, um, it is e- very easy to make like jokes about conspiracy theorists. And then, yeah, the more you listen, the more you're like, oh, is it serious? Like often with Truanon stuff, when they talk about um, – things that are like non-Epstein stuff, like say like 5G or stuff. I'm like, wait, how serious are they? Are they actually 5G truthers? I can't really tell. Like the line between irony and, and um, genuine, like sincerity is quite blurred there, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And like, um, yeah, that is like very much this kind of um, mode of engaging with mm. it. But it's also the fact that you kind of genuinely don't know. Yeah. Um. And Epstein's kind of a good example of that, where it's very hard to look at Epstein and not be like, okay, it's like at least very plausible that like he was murdered by like parties unknown. Like you can't surely, like surely, it's like so unreasonable that that's not the case. Like proving that that isn't the case seems harder at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like um, 
the cameras in his cell were just oh they malfunctioned whoops <laughs> it, it happens <laughs> yeah there's so many things but you can't prove that like and you know you have no kind of capacity to prove that yeah um but i also would think it speaks to um the there's kind of a distinction here between the kind of liberal left and the um i guess marxist left mm. which i think is about this question of like uh organization where there's this idea, and it's a very neoliberal idea, um, and has kind of emerged in the last few decades that um, central organization doesn't work. That's like one of the cornerstones of neoliberal thought, that you can't centralize an economy, that you can't like, you can't have any system where it's like a few people making plans and kind of directing it from like uh, the top. Mm. And that the idea that these organic, like bottom up, uh, so almost anarchist systems will always be able to beat the kind of centralized top-down stuff. Um, network network society, basically. Yeah, One like, of my um, old bosses, and for those of you who've heard me talk about my job before, a lot of exceedingly cursed material there, but one of his favorite books was called like The Spider and the Starfish. And it was all about how like if you, I can't now remember which one was meant to be the good one, but <laughs> I think if you cut off one of a spider's legs, it can still keep going. But the starfish has a centralized nervous system. So if you cut off one of its legs, it dies. So you want to be the spider, not the starfish. <laughs> like one of the dumbest books in the world, but he um, thought this was amazing. <laughs> well, I don't know. If, if animals has taught me anything, it's that if you cut a, like a starfish and two they'll like like grow back okay. as a clone of themselves maybe the starfish was a good one <laughs> but also like there was some someone like that like, found like... a huntsman with one leg and like fed it milk or something <laughs> and it grew its all its legs back so the book is like like not only like a very dumb premise to begin with but really based not on biological fact no <laughs> i mean that's like every leftist organization is like you just cut them in two and they just grow two new leftist organizations. <laughs> Which I are thought, an absolute clone of each other. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that every, every leftist organization is a huntsman with one leg. Like, <laughs> That's also true, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> um, Vaguely. <laughs> but yeah, so I... Um, that's interesting. So if you believe that, one of the big kind of arguments against um, the conspiracy theories from a like, liberal position is just that they couldn't work, like that mm. they couldn't happen. Um, that the government would be kind of too stupid to do it, basically. And the argument, like, I, I think the argument from the kind of uh, Marxist position and is, like, like I, I guess I think this is a broader kind of ongoing debate. Um, and it's kind of a Marxist-anarchist debate as well. It's just the question of, like, to what extent does, do you need central organisation? Do you, what extent does that actually work? And to what extent is that even possible? Um, and so, I mean, this, where this comes back to the kind of conspiracy theories, and I guess the reason why I think that, um, like, the socialist left might be more willing to be conspiracy theorists is that you can kind of say, well, okay, like, maybe it is more plausible that this might be centrally directed. Like, the idea... Like, I've, I've thought this going back and looking through, like, the CIA history which is a lot more like no like we like stuff doesn't just happen like history isn't just kind of like bounce around and kind of isn't just like under the control of these like abstract forces it's also like no there were like specific guys like organizing and planning and like directing events in a specific way that they wanted to happen mm. 
Yeah. Well, I think um, that was kind of my uh, thinking back to the podcast we recorded right after the Iowa caucus, which feels about four years ago now, but I think it was in February. Um, that was kind of my own dilemma. Like part of me was like, clearly something shady is going on, but I can't tell if it's like deliberately executed like by the DNC from above or if they just tried to do something shady and fucked it up like because the app just appeared to have broken they're like mm. I don't know whether you planned this or whether you are just so incompetent that you couldn't build an app um could be either one I still don't know yeah like the Iowa caucus has just been memory hold now but yeah. it's another really <laughs> solid example of like one of these events where you're like there's enough there I remember like um Pete Buttigieg going on TV and just claiming victory yes all these, like, the fact that the company was called Shadow Inc. Shadow Inc., yeah. All of that yeah. stuff. Made up. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of these, um, yeah, like, conspiratorial events where you're like, well, there's clearly enough here that it looks like something's going on. Mm. But, like, it, you know, it could just, like, the events do sometimes just happen, I mm. guess. Mm. On a cultural note, I, like, I've been thinking for a little while that, that, like, this ironic kind of form that the left's increasingly kind of started taking is, it is, again, related to, like, the neoliberal condition as well. And I might have a relationship to the the conspiracy stuff, but like definitely thinking of like the early nineties and like MTV and Daria and like Nirvana being like these massive cultural, like Nirvana being a cultural touchstone for so much longer than it had any right to be like, (laughs) like, but like for such a long time, it was such a like important part of like, the high school guys kind of life like way way longer than (laughs) their relevance yeah because when we were in high school i was a huge nirvana guy yeah um and like how much like this like yeah and and like the way kurt was like this relatively engaged political person who then gave the fuck out after just like becoming commercialized by neoliberalism and being like oh i can't like i'm not in control of my life or like my symbolic kind of like political purpose Mm. so i think to some extent this kind of like, and then you compare that to, like, the very, like, deeply, like, painfully earnest music of, like, the 80s. And I think that there is this kind of relationship where we've, as we've got, like, less in control as, like, various aspects of social democracy have withered, we've reverted to irony and probably to some extent to conspiracy theory to to explain that lack of control over our existence and over our lives. Yeah. I've been, um, yeah, I've been reading um, Kia Milburn's book, Generation Left, and he kind of cites Mark Fisher quite a lot. Um, And he talks about, takes from Mark Fisher this idea of uh, neoliberalism as a project of uh, consciousness deflation, of like kind of ironing out and like ironing over and like stamping out your ability to like think new things, basically. Mm. And to kind of like very deliberately limit like the ideas that you can kind of have. Well, I was actually going to bring up Mark Fisher then as well because he, I think, it's somewhere in his book, um, which, what's his book called? Oh, my God. Uh, All I can think of is... Capitalist Realism, <laughs> duh. All I could think was How to Catch a Dragon. I was like, that's <laughs> not it. Um, anyway, somewhere in Capitalist Realism, he he actually um, brings up the, the idea that Kurt Cobain was like, well, the last, you know, eventually realised that he was... Um, that his image was being used, yeah, like totally without his control. That he, and and he was destined to be a kind of simulacrum of himself in a way, like a copy of a copy. Um, and it was all artificial. And then after that, after, you know, after he killed himself, what became the sort of dominant cultural form in, in music um, was hip hop, um, which is in a way like 
embraces the kind of commodification and violence of capitalism like not to say that it doesn't you know offer its own like critiques and and there's not like a kind of art form but it engages in a very different like in a much more I guess what we call 21st century way but yeah. uh, we're drifting away from the old well, conspiracy to, to bring it back though because yeah. like I, I do think this is while well, we've wandered a bit kind of part of a broader thing mm. um, which is that I do kind of see um, the conspiracy theories as a, I guess a form of kind of expanding your consciousness out again I think mm. there's this really kind of important tension in this kind of ongoing debate about the conspiracy theories whether they're kind of good or bad which is a debate about what you're like what's kind of within the realm of normal thought mm. which is a realm that is like constantly uh contracting under neoliberalism mm. um and that's this kind of yeah like that kind of speaks to me of this question of like well like can we even think anymore for instance, like, can we think that something might be centrally organized? Like, can we accept that? I, I, I guess what I'm saying, like, the more I kind of read about the CIA, I think the CIA is like the cleanest example for me because it is, it's historically unambiguous that the CIA did act as like a, a centralized organization that did do a lot of covert stuff that verged on stuff that you wouldn't believe if it wasn't historically very carefully documented and did have a very uh, significant influence on the course of world history. Mm. Um, and also were not really subject to democratic control and were ultimately like a cabal of rich guys conspiring in secret rooms in Washington, D.C. to direct the course of world history so that it benefited them and... They, you know, they assassinated people and they overthrew governments and they manipulated economies. And they also very much, they had an, like an ideological division that promoted ideas and even forms of art and literature that benefited their preferred um, ideology and their preferred material goals. Um, and they, you know, did all this behind the scenes and they were funded by the US government. And like, it didn't come out in some cases until decades later. Mm. So that's a clear historical example of a conspiracy theory that is true. And it's something that I guess for me exists in this space of like, just kind of pushing belief, like just like slightly at the point where it's not like, it seems kind of unbelievable that they did all this stuff that they did, but they definitely did do it. Mm. Um, and I guess I suppose for me kind of, reading about it is a point where it does kind of expand your ideas of what's pop what's possible um oh i was actually just gonna say like my my first kind of when you when you were starting talking about conspiracy theories and consciousness deflation i was gonna say that i think to some extent they they kind of do also limit your thinking because they they are so formulaic i was thinking of the um the like the conspiracy theory generator that you and nico yeah, made yeah, which yeah. was because because like we'll link that yeah yeah I think it's still up I think I think it's still up it's it's because it's quite fun but it, like it, it you know it's the same kind of sentence with just like a few little parts kind of like changed around in each kind of thing but it does show like that the conspiracies do have this like like well theories do have this very like formulaic kind of pattern of thinking like it's this secret group they're vaguely like they're vaguely aligned with J the Jews and mm. like and they do things to destroy like this mm. through like this institution but you can defeat it by this like this yeah, effect yeah, yeah. 
and like to some extent they like they, they they could be a manifestation of like a deflated consciousness where you you can only use the same formula to that's explain true, like yeah. the yeah. world again. I should just yeah say that's a um a, a thing that I made in Twine, which is like an interactive um fiction thing, which just randomly generates conspiracy theories. I'll see if we can find that and we'll link yeah, to it. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's to me like that kind of gets to maybe what we were talking about before the le- difference between left and right conspiracy yeah. theories. Yeah. Because I think that's very much like the right wing conspiracy theory is like. Um, you know, QAnon uh, is real and Donald Trump is like, he is actually gone undercover in the world of elite pedophiles to bring them down. Um, like, it's quite simple. Like, it makes no sense, but I can more or less follow it. Um, and, it, you know, it starts getting like, there are some insane offshoots like JFK Jr. is alive or whatever. But you c- the basic premise is like, okay, I can see, I can see what this is. Whereas the reason that I haven't um, really like ever bothered to learn for instance, what the CIA has done is because the idea of reading all those Wikipedia articles and putting it together is so exhausting. And like just the amount of like learning I would have to do, (laughs) this is making me sound really dumb and lazy, but like (laughs) um, just the amount, basically uh, like I know that they're bad guys. And like you said, they've basically been meeting in powerful rooms in Washington to control world history, but I don't know how. And the idea of like putting in the effort to learn how and to adjust my consciousness so that I would be able to explain it to somebody else is very tiring to me. Like, and I think that's basically how ideology functions, you know, like at the moment um, I'm reading uh, Open Veins of Latin America, which is like a really good um, popular history book about Latin America and it's published in the seventies. So it's not actually very like up to date with some of the more recent crimes in that region, but it basically follows the history of um, conquest, colonialism and um, development in the region and how it's, you know, basically um, served as this massive transfer of wealth from Latin America to Europe and the US. Um, and just like, you know, and I, I'm a lefty and like have spent years like, you know, reading about the stuff and have degrees in it and everything. And even now I still find it like quite hard intellectual work just to read it and just... Um, understand like why you know how all that stuff happened and why it's bad because for you know my whole life basically we've been fed the idea that development is good that you know opening new markets is good that um, capitalism in in new regions is actually good and even though I know it's not right it is like quite difficult just to adjust your mind to think to think differently Um, not just to read it but to understand why it is so that's a long-winded way of saying I guess um, that's you know yeah, I think as leftists engaging with quote-unquote conspiracy theories, it demands like a deeper level of engagement <laughs> that is hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and especially because to some extent, like, like you know the CIA is evil and you know that they've done all these things. Like, like you don't you don't ever need to read about it to know that, like, they tried to kill Fidel with a cigar. Yeah, like, that's yeah, just yeah. one of the things that comes up, which sounds like bullshit, but everyone knows it's, it's a true. Fun little, that's a it's, fun little... And, and it's because it's a fun tidbit. Like, yeah, of course yeah. it comes up. But, like, you know the shape of things. So, like, to actually fully engage with like the mechanisms and the whys and the characters involved is it's so laborious to to just really fill out something that you already have a pretty clear grasp of as well like yeah I guess I've found in writing it you kind of like you kind of end up um putting it all together into a kind of basic story but Mm. like you you know as well like the story that you've kind of told yourself is not like the full um thing well you also know that you 
do ultimately want to know what's actually true. Mm, that's you- the thing. That's what I feel like. And the other thing that, that I sorry to interrupt, but like the other thing that this make the remind that reminds me of the sensation is like the feeling when you get really into a true crime case, like an unsolved mystery, and you're like, mm. I just want to know. Like you just feel like maybe if I just read one more article, I'll like figure it out. Um, but that that feeling of like truth is like just around the corner, but you can't ever get to it. <laughs> yeah, oh, sorry, I think it always end. I was just thinking about true crime. There's a I'm a book by John Safran called Murder in Mississippi, which is a really good true crime book, um, which is very like that where you kind of get to the end and it's like, I want to say it's like a white supremacist murders a black guy, but then was maybe sleeping with the black guy. And yeah. like you, you get to the end and like, he's just like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. that's, and it is very similar. It's so fucking postmodern. Like I've been <laughs> reading a lot of books about the Kennedy assassination. Right. Yeah. And there are like, people who will absolutely tell you that like Kennedy was definitely assassinated by the CIA. Um, and like, certainly I think that's very possible, but like no matter how much reading you do about it, like you never get to a point where you're like, I know. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's, what's so frustrating about it as well. And, and again, why I have the same resistance to you, Joe, about like engaging with this stuff so much as being like, yeah, but of course all the juicy shit is not going to come out. Like, <laughs> like if this, if this like, group of people are powerful enough to literally alter the course of world history Mm. by like having conversations and wiring money to like some like you know some arms group somewhere in south america they're sure shit not gonna let like let the the really really juicy shit out like (laughs) and also i think it all especially with the epstein stuff this has kind of raised the question of so what if they did? Like, yeah. we, we know, yeah. basically, like, allegedly, that Jeffrey Epstein was murdered and that it was done to protect, like, a you know, elite ring of um, pedophiles who basically control the world. Um, but what can anyone do about it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's, like, part of kind of what's, like, starting to happen. Maybe why, like, the left seems to be engaging with, like, conspiracies at a pretty broad, like, level right now. Like, I think ACFM... Was, was doing the same thing on Navarro. It's like, th- they don't even have to pretend anymore. They're just like, oh no, we fucking killed him. Like, yeah. we killed we kid- we killed our pedophile friend. Um, <laughs> we're still pedophiles. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. And- well, what's, yeah, like what's so interesting about, from what I've kind of read about the Kennedy assassination is that there's like roughly a million people who came out later and were like, oh yeah, like I worked for the CIA and they like, said that they were going to kill Kennedy and then they did and like so like yeah it's like eh. there's no official and like it is all like it first it is true I think the number kind of goes up and down but at the high point it was a solid 80 percent of Americans who were like believed that they weren't getting the full story yeah totally um I enjoyed like Earlier this year, uh, some polling company did a poll. This was during the Democratic primary where there was still like a ton of people in the race and they polled like support for each candidate with a cross tab of the question like, do you think Epstein killed himself or not? <laughs> that rule. It was amazing. What was like, were there any like interesting breakdowns uh, about I, it I that you can remember. recall? As I, I recall, that was one of like the really big difference between like Bernie and Warren supporters yeah, is that yeah, Bernie yeah. supporters <laughs> not thought that Epstein was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, that sounds so right. I do yeah. think it's, yeah, like... Um, what was just saying? Yeah, there was, um, like a, a secret service agent, a guy called Abraham Bolden, who, uh, was the first black guy on the White House detail of the secret service and had been like personally hired by Kennedy. Um, and like after Kennedy was shot was like, oh yeah, like 
Secret Service agents would joke about killing him all the time. And, like, also we got a mysterious phone call that told us there was a plan to kill Kennedy. Um, so that's weird. Yeah, and then he was like framed for like being involved in a counterfeiting ring and did like years in jail and like never worked in the secret service again and you've never heard of this guy see that's a whole other see that would take like an afternoon on wikipedia to figure out yeah and that's just like one tiny facet of this huge spider web it's so intimidating (laughs) yeah um yeah like it does kind of like i've been listening and like kind of consuming a lot of this stuff and it is. It becomes quite impressionistic, and I guess that's like how I always kind of experience conspiracy theories. Is there's like an impressionistic kind of blur, and then you remember mm-hmm. a few kind of key things, mm-hmm. but you're also, um, yeah, you just end up kind of being like, yeah, that was, yeah, there's just like a something's going on, mm. and I think that's also part of like why the left is a little bit like less enthusiastic to like really engage with this stuff as well is because you do end up sounding like a crank. Like, yeah. you do just, like, end up being like, no, I'm pretty fucking sure, though. Like, I've yeah. read a lot of stuff. I can't remember it all, but this detail, this detail, like... You cornered someone in a party. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. tell you about the JFK. And then they start asking questions, and you're like, well, if you just watch this four-hour YouTube video... <laughs> I have a lot of good resources I'll send you. I don't quite remember that at the moment, yeah. but... But, like, um, if you've... If you've would just do exactly what I've done and spend like a week breaking your brain, then you would probably believe it too. Yeah. Um, But I think that's, and I think that um, trope, shall we say, of like the kind of foaming at the mouth um, lefty conspiracy theorist is being weaponized a bit. Like, um, I can't remember, I think it was in the article you wrote, Matt, where you quoted some guy who's, who referred to the conspiracy theory that 1%, the 1% control the economy. Yeah, this was from um, a 538 podcast. Oh, God. Um, where he refers... Do you, did you listen to it? Or did I you... listened to the whole thing, yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, where he refers to the idea that the 1% control the world as, uh, and I quote, a fever dream of the radical left, mm. um, which is not... Which No, that's that's real. Pretty yeah, sure that's real. I mean, they're just gaslighting us there, but you yeah. can see... But this <laughs> is something that... The kind of, yeah, like a thing I kind of want to talk about. There's a, a couple of things that I like want to talk about here, and there's something that... I kind of think needs to be made clear if you're talking about conspiracy theories and if you kind of believe in them and if you're kind of thinking like, yes, yeah, something to this stuff, um, which is that Jewish people have nothing to do with it. That, yeah. And that's the oh, one yeah, super important. That's the one that is super important that you don't flirt with. Yeah. You're not like, you're not in this irony world where it's like, Ooh, maybe, maybe that no, like the, no, that one's racist. Yeah. <laughs> that one is not true. Good point. Very and like, good point. it's not even like, that's different to like QAnon. Like QAnon is like, well, that's not true, but you know, you can kind of see how they got there. There's probably elements of truth to it. Like Bill Clinton probably is does, a pedophile. Probably is a pedophile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's yeah, like not the case with anti-Semitic conspiracy yeah. theories. And that is important because conspiracy theories have a very close historical relationship with anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. um, and are often like structured around like structured in the same way as like there's a book by umberto eco called the prague cemetery which he writes about um the origins of the protocols of the elders of zion um and explains how this kind of classic anti-semitic text is kind of borrowed from all these other works of 19th century literature um and he's it's about the basic structure of conspiracy theories and like that is the thing that 
like because the other thing i kind of want to talk about is how this has been weaponized against the left like Mm. as you said and that's i think a big part of how it's being weaponized is that and people have people have kind of said this the guy on the 538 podcast kind of said this um but the idea that if you like the idea that basically that anti-capitalism is inherently anti-semitic which like is a way of linking like any kind of theory at all if you're kind of willing to say it all well there is a group of organized people with power who are working against us that is this kind of conspiracy theory like that becomes a conspiracy theory and that becomes this insane thing that you're not allowed to believe yeah well you just have to look at what they did to corbyn right yeah Yeah. that's a pretty much a prime example yeah um so we're about i don't know what halfway through is there oh well actually matt i did want to ask you about the other um aspect of your article which is basically like how the left um should engage with people who believe in conspiracy theories basically like we shouldn't um you know exclude them from politics so do you want to talk through that a bit um yeah so i guess i think first that i think like almost everyone kind of believes in some conspiracy theory Mm. um and i also think i guess it's it's kind of an important point that you don't expect kind of voters or like people you're trying to bring in your project to be too kind of scrupulously rational about every facet of their thinking and you kind of work with what you've got and you understand look a lot of people out there are pretty eccentric and pretty willing to just like i think we've all kind of had experiences like door knocking people who are just like oh i don't understand your internal system at all but like whatever yeah yeah but also it seems to be fundamentally like close to how I understand reality, yeah. like, like it's insane. But also, you seem to get that they there are a bunch of people who, and the problem isn't that they're Jews; it's that they're rich. Like, you're not racist, and you more or less think that we should overthrow capitalism. Though you wouldn't say it like that, I guess yeah, you're yeah. fine. Like, well, I think um, I always remember something um, Matt Christmas said on Chapo. Uh, I think yeah, earlier this year when Bernie was still in the race, he was talking about swing voters, and he was like. These people are not moderates. They're lunatics. Like. <laughs> yeah. That is one of the most important, I think, points to understand. Yeah. Yeah, like... Um, but there's also a question there about um, how you deal with, like, anti-vaxxers and, mm. like, people who think that COVID's not real. Yeah. Which is a whole other... Because, and especially because we've doorknocked for the Greens and there is a connection between green politics and that kind of, like, new age type anti-science anti-medicine stuff Mm. um which is i think more of a well like the green party in england is famous for their like association with david ike who literally believes that the queen of england is a is a lizard person cool 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 cool. um and like uh anti-vax like i read something the other day that's like anti-vaxxers um here in australia are like more likely to vote for the green party not surprising. Yeah, no, that sounds right. Surprising. Yeah. Well, but like, and I think it comes to like what is actually happening when people are developing conspiracy theories, or or even like like grabbing onto things like this is it's increasing distrust in like government and civil society and any sort of authoritarian like authority whatsoever. And obviously, like most people's relationship with medicine is with an authority. Like we're we're really taught to like lionize the doctors in our life. Like everyone wants their kids to be a doctor when they grow up and stuff like that because of their important social standing. So when you start being like, you know, look, I'm pretty sure there's no authority that seems to be like justified out there. 
well, why wouldn't the doctor be lying to me? Mm. Well, um, it's that thing, right? The same thing is, it's kind of the same reason anyone believes any conspiracy theories because they don't have, they know they don't have control. Um, and particularly if it's about, you know, your body or your child's body, that becomes really emotive. Um, and that correct assessment of the situation just gets displaced onto the wrong kind of cause. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, I think we've got this thing where liberals are now like, well, we're the pro-science party. Mm. Joe Biden keeps talking about That's this. That's what he said in the... We were just watching his acceptance speech before and he said something like, um, uh, science over... Facts over fiction. And, and yeah, but he, he loves it. He loves talking... Well. He loves talking about the science. He says he's going to unmuzzle the experts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they love this. Like, yeah, liberals Kinky. love this and they don't, un- I think, understand that it's something that only liberals love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is like outward facing communication. Like it's not, I think there's been like a liberal failure to understand that like pro-science and pro-expert are not neutral positions because like the, like they might be correct positions. I'm mm. not, I, I'm not saying I'm against these things. But we need to understand that, like, being pro-science is, like, an ideologically constructed position in a specific framework. And, like, you have to advocate for it politically, like, in the political realm. You can't just, like, take that as a, a, a basic thing that everyone has to be on side with or they're stupid. Yeah, it's like there's so much of, like, like an... I'm thinking of a particular friend here who's like so like such a brilliant and committed scientist and thinks really really clearly about a lot of things but is so unwilling to I guess understand the way that like that her position in society and like and the position of like everyone else in society constructs a world in which science is constructed to be and to behave in a certain way and that it's, it it really does like, it's really neither here nor there when it comes to, like, issues of political power. And it's really neither here nor there when it comes to, you know, things of justice and things of, of that nature. Yeah, well, I think it's such an appealing position because it's um, very easy to kind of glom on to, to science, the idea of science and experts as being apolitical. And because I think a lot of liberals don't really want to think about power or justice or ideology or anything like that. Like, they prefer, they would prefer things to be apolitical Um Unfortunately, nothing actually is, but, you know, science does a good job of pretending to be, or it's easy, it's easier to try and, you know, pretend to yourself that you're just on the side of science rather than any particular ideology. Um, before we get into the, the CIA portion of the show, though, um, Matt, one last thing. I just want you to tell us about this Atlantic article uh, called, hang on, How American Politics Went Insane. Can yeah. you uh, take us through this? Because this, this is a spicy take by Jonathan Rauch. Yeah, this is something that... Um, this is is kind of broadly related, I guess. So this is just something I came across kind of researching this. Um, and it's this, yeah, Atlantic article, um, the explicit thesis of which is that... Can we read it? It's yeah. like... Just um, the explicit thesis of this Atlantic article is that uh, the political establishment is absolutely fine. It's doing a great job, but the people have betrayed the establishment. <laughs> and that's like, I think it says in those like exact words, like the people have abandoned the political establishment. I'm just going to. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the biggest obstacle is the general public's reflexive, unreasoning hostility to politicians and the process of politics. Neurotic hatred of the political caste is the country's last universally accepted form of bigotry. 
<laughs> I love that. It can be racist towards the political class. <laughs> and like, I think, okay, I think this is really indicative of an emerging liberal position that um, the Atlantic as a magazine is the best expression of this, but the 538 piece is another really good example. I wouldn't even call it emerging. Yeah, yeah, it's very solidly. That is true because it's actually really well formulated and really clear and explicit that this is what they believe. But perhaps it's become, I I would say it's become more um, explicit since 2016, basically, when they're they're person lost. This has been one of, I think, the really big kind of developments since 2016 is that the liberals have kind of reacted to this paranoid turn on the right, to the popularity of this kind of like QAnon um, stuff and this kind of increase, like this, you know, weird fever dream sense of the kind of Trump and like the new right. And then also the emergence of like Bernie and Corbyn and the kind of new like populist left as well. And they've kind of defined themselves against those two things by saying, okay, these are the same thing. Because what it is, it's, um, as, yeah, that guy was saying there, it's the people have turned against the elites and the problem is not with the elites, it's with the people. Mm -hmm. So, like, the underlying logic of which is, like, well, people, as we know, can't govern themselves. Like, what has happened is that we were doing a great job, but people were too stupid to recognise and appreciate all of our hard work. And so they've turned against us and they need to stop doing that. Mm. Like, that's the only way we're going to solve the problem is if that stops happening and people respect us again. I just remember Anthony Albanese um, in a recent interview said, um, I I now regret saying during the federal election that if people don't like Labour's policies, they should vote for someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have told the voters they're all stupid bunch of cunts. Joe Biden loves telling people to vote for someone else. Well, exactly. I feel I was just going to say as well, I feel like we've come kind of full circle now. We're Mm -hmm. back to the theme of um, politicians who um, barely bother to disguise their disdain for the public. Well, it's yeah. And that's the thing, right? It's like. This is this gets kind of broad and I have a lot of theories about this, but um, yeah, like the response to this conspiracy theories because they've kind of defined conspiracy theory very broadly, and because they've predetermined the conspiracy theory to be uh, like neurotic and irrational and like motivated by nothing, mm. that kind of ends up with this um, anti-populism basically mm-hmm. and. I've been reading, uh, Thomas Frank is, has a new book on this, which is very good and which quotes that article. Like, um, I've been like obsessed. I read that article quite a while ago and it just like stuck in my head and I was like, oh, so they're just admitting it. Oh, um, and then like, um, Thomas Frank quotes from it extensively in his new book. So it's obviously also stuck in his head. So I feel very validated (laughs) by that. Um, but yeah, like. I don't know, I guess that's just what I'm saying is that, yeah, like I think that conspiracy theories are playing a very important role in the emergence of especially this kind of new um, reactionary liberalism and that that poses the difficulty for the left in some ways. Mm. Yeah. Totally. Especially because because of this liberalism's appeal to to a technocratic elite as well, which is really trying to say that actually it is good if a small group of people in a room do largely yeah. make decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Unless we have, like, anything else. I, th- I feel like that was a good discussion, but um, we can move on to the talking a little yeah. more about the CIA. Because I feel like that, to me, is, like, sort of the nexus of a lot of conspiracy theories. Like, just 
you know, learning about MK Ultra would take you probably six months to even get across some of the details. And that's just one thing. So I will, yeah, throw it over to to you, Matt, or yeah, Deckers, yeah. if you want to talk through some of this. Um, I don't know too much about the CIA. It's definitely yeah. one of those things that, like, I've, I've reacted with the same way to you. But I was I was just reading a couple of things about AZO. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, and its relationship to the CIA. And, and I guess what I was... Like, the, the theme of this book, book that I was reading is just, like, a few people... Like, quite a few, like, relatively prominent Australians, including, like, David Stratton, the guy who thought The Castle was a bad movie with hardly a laugh, just to show <laughs> how fucking communist he was. Um, and Peter Cundall of, like, Gardening Australia fame yeah. and stuff. Like, all these people, like, accessing their ASIO files and then, like, like writing a little bit about them and their relationship to being, to being surveilled. And what was, like... The theme that the, that the like, the ex-like New South Wales Legislative Assembly Labor MP, who was the editor, was, like, really trying to get at was that the CIA, not the CIA, ASIO, has functioned, like, in a quite a party political way. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this is to, to do with its relationship to, like, Cold War communism, but also that it operates in this party political way and that that's, that's bad. But wouldn't go so far as to say that, like, a secret police is bad mm. or that they shouldn't, like, try to repress communists. Um, but I, I felt like one of the things that was really lacking was talking about the role of, of the CIA as, like, a political and ideological institution in a class society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hopefully what we can get into. Yeah, like, um, I was just thinking, uh, the magazine Quadrant, which is now a very um, right-wing magazine. Um, the CAA funded that when it was starting out mm. um, as part of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, mm. which was this like attempt to fight back against com- uh, communist infiltration in literature. Was this also where the Iowa Writers' Workshop came in? It's a similar thing, yeah. I don't know that much about that, but like, yeah, they were, like the CAA were funding like stuff like the Iowa Writers' Workshop to encourage novelists to write in like particular ways. Huh. Um that I don't remember what exactly, but like it, it is true that like the CIA, like ASIO, like it's important to understand that these are not ideologically neutral. Like ov- obviously these are like the CIA has been a, like specifically a Republican organization. And mm-hmm. so I'll start. So yeah, the CIA was founded in um, the immediate wake of world war two. Um, it was uh, built out of a, uh, OSS, the Office for Strategic Services, which was this kind of uh, World War II spy organization. Um, and it was run by a guy called Alan Dulles, who was uh, a wealthy New York Republican. Um, and he and his brother, John Foster Dulles, uh, John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State, basically. Okay. Um, so was it a government body? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and it was found... Uh, it was so these guys like these Dulles brothers a lot of this actually comes out of our resistance to the New Deal Mm. um, and the kind of backlash against like the New Deal was you know not really socialist but like a sort of massive restructuring of the American economy along kind of pseudo-socialist lines social democracy social democratic lines yeah and these like rich Republican guys from East thought oh this is a communist takeover basically um, cause as they always think they like, no matter what you kind of do along those lines, they always think, well, this is like, this is the people rising up and the people are dangerous and like, they have to be kept in their place. 
Um, and so these were the guys who kind of founded the CIA in the first place, was these like anti-New Deal Republicans. Now, a fun fact about those guys was that they were pretty friendly with um, just a, just an organization called the Nazis. <laughs> um, and they like a lot of like American businessmen were pretty sympathetic to fascism. Mm. Famously, Henry Ford, like a open anti-Semite. Um, but like a lot of these other guys also had these kind of loose connections and were quite like pro-Nazi and kind of hung out with them in the years before the war. Um, and so what happened was as the CIA was coming into being, they pretty much immediately started recruiting Nazis because mm. they pretty much immediately said to themselves, okay, the next war is going to be with the Soviets. Like there's going to be a world war three because as well, you've got to remember, so the Soviets didn't have nukes at this time. So they weren't thinking in terms of like, we're going to have a nuclear standoff and it's going to last for decades. They were thinking, no, there'll be a ground war with the Soviet Union. Like, it's just going to be exactly like World War Two. Like, we're worried about the Soviet Union invading Western Europe through like Poland. Like, they're going to invade, you know, Western Germany. Like, obviously... Like, why wouldn't they, right? Like, they already invaded Germany. Like, they owned half of Germany at this time. There was a real thing of, like, oh, that's our new frontier. Like, what's going to happen next? So the first thing they did, basically, as an institution was start to recruit all these different Nazis. Um, And there was a thing called uh, Operation Sunrise, which was um, the kind of brainchild of Alan Dulles, where he organized on his own terms an early surrender of a bunch of Nazis in Italy, um, and actually cut a kind of separate deal with them to be like, I'm trying, I don't remember the names of the Nazis, but you can look them up. There's a lot of guys who are like, okay, like come on board. Like, we'll give you a sweetheart deal. Some of you will kind of smuggle out to South America. Um, like Klaus Barbie, who was a, uh, you know, a concentration camp, like Nazi butcher. He was a, he was, he was the guy who was in charge of hunting out the resistance yeah. in, in France. Um, and like, yeah, notoriously a, like a torturer and stuff like this, yeah. but very much like like s- specialized in hunting out like resistance groups and political groups in in urban areas, I guess, hmm. which is, would have been what their concern was and why they wanted these these particular skills. Yeah, yeah, and like, and the CIA smuggled him to Bolivia, where he like you know lived until the seventies. Um, and like the the Catholic Church was involved in that as well. The CIA in Italy had a lot to do with like the mafia and the Catholic Church. Um, but yeah, and there were, there were other Nazis. There was a guy called, um, I think Reinhard Gellin, who, uh, was again, like recruited by Dulles or by the CIA in the forties and ended up, he was the head of West Germany's like secret services for a long time and like ran aspiring, um, that was kind of intended to infiltrate East Germany. It turned out itself had been fully infiltrated by the Soviets and was just like run by, but like the the point is that they had like <laughs> like an open and like proud Nazi running like their security services mm-hmm. for like um, decades after the fact, and there's like a lot of these guys. Mm. Um, so pretty much like from its inception, one of the major roles of the CIA was like to work with fascists against the Soviets and to represent the Soviet Union as this existential threat to the West, which could be justified by any amount of force, which could justify any amount of opposition. Mm. Um, And that's basically what they did for the next... So, like, 
yeah, like for the next few decades, basically, is they invented this idea of um, uh, like a global Soviet menace that had its was kind of infiltrating everyone everywhere in the world that could strike at any time and that any social democratic movement anywhere in the world was like possibly just like a foothold for Soviets Mm. And so um, yeah. I was just going to say, like, I think you put something in the notes about this, but the situation in Guatemala, I was actually reading about in my Latin mm. American uh, history book. And it was, it was his name, Arbez, I think. Um, Jacopo, Jacobo uh, Arbenz. Arbenz yeah. um, was the, became the president of mm. Guatemala. And uh, which Guatemala at that time was basically almost wholly owned by um, United Fruit. And they, well, in which I mean, they owned like a lot of land. Um they're only using 8% of it um, to actually cultivate bananas. Uh, so the government began redistributing some of the land that um, they weren't using, which was most of it, um, to peasants uh, who had been you know, forcibly dispossessed from that land to begin with. And, um, yeah, the reaction was exactly what you said. Like the, the propaganda said um, Iron Curtain falls across Guatemala and that justified an extremely bloody military coup. Um, backed by the CIA, as I think is pretty well understood by now. Yeah, and a historical fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah historical fact. And, um, you know, uh, slaughter, widespread slaughter, torture, all those things, um, done, all done totally in the, in the name of, you know, invoking the Soviet menace. And Guatemala is a good example. Another good example is Iran, which is maybe the most immediately consequential one, because what happened in Iran was that um, Muhammad... Mossadegh? I, don't, I actually don't know how you say his name. but like, Mossadegh? Yeah, it sounds right. So. I don't know. That's, yeah, um, that's how it's, it's spelled. It seems to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry if we're getting that wrong. But, um, but yeah, right. he was going to nationalize uh, the oil, which was owned by the Anglo-Persian oil company. So the British said, well, no, that's ours. Like, that's our property. We're making money off it. Um, so they organized a coup against Mossadegh and they um, reinstalled the, um, the Shah, the king, basically. Um, and... Yeah, that's another example. Like Arbenz and Mossadegh, they weren't communists. They were not. No. Like, they, you know, there were like there was a communist party of Iran, which like Mossadegh was not in, but was not hostile to either. Yeah. yeah. And I think these both like those are the two kind of examples I remember Iran and Guatemala. There were you know quite a few others. Um, the kind of point that jumps out to me is that these are both very explicitly colonial. So this takes place against the background of like the British Empire kind of finally being dismantled Mm -hmm. and the kind of emergence of these like independent um, colonial states, like places like, I don't know, Kenya, well, India is like a solid example. India, like I think, became independent in 1947. Um, But then also like in the cases of like the oil company or United Fruit, very clear continuation of just like direct colonial exploitation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that those examples are almost quite, well, they are quite clear cut and obvious, like what the interest was and how that links to the historical roots of the CIA. But I'm also interested like in some of the weirder shit, like the MK Ultra stuff, like yeah, how yeah. does that fit into, cause that's something like almost, I'm not going to say more sinister cause it's obviously incredibly sinister to organize a military coup, but it's it's really weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, um, so let's just think about this. I mean, I think like what I was getting from the like from the ASIO one even was just like it's clear that these are just the most like 
horrifically over-resourced parts of the public sector imaginable. <laughs> yeah. Like, because and that's that's what like what everyone was saying. Like Peter Cundall like joined the CPA in like Launceston, which is like not even the biggest city in Tasmania for fuck's <laughs> sake. And like what wasn't even the powerful in, Launceston branch. Like, of the wasn't CPA. even in it for very long. Like at this at, like a lot of this point as well, like the CPA the CPA was like like explicitly anti-Soviet, like that that split had already started to happen. Like there was no like realistic like like possibility that that Kundal would have anything to do with like the Soviet Union. But they still like followed him around everywhere, like just everywhere. And it would have been so boring. Like they've just like <laughs> painfully dictated like all, like so many of his phone calls and like got like like there's all these different things of them being like, oh yeah, we went to a meeting. Uh, he discussed fruit trees, no like political like context, what like content whatsoever, <laughs> and like it happens again and again and again. So I think like part of this MK Ultra stuff is that they are just so insanely well resourced. Yeah, no, like, um, so MK Ultra was the CIA's mind control program, um, and it's like, and I guess the thing for me, the thing that kind of jumps out, the people who are actually doing this, I think one of the ironies here, the people who are actually running the CIA are insane conspiracy theorists mm. like they're the like the most insane people of the bunch um and so like like because they actually do believe this stuff um like yeah i'm just i'm just thinking about this so um yeah the mk ultra program uh which began in the 50s was the ca's attempt to uh, develop a mind control um, and then he experimented with, I think, a variety of drugs, uh, no- most notably LSD, um, to see if any of these basically could be used as a truth serum <laughs> or could be used as a, um, yeah, like a, a form of mind control. It's, okay, now I've, uh, yeah, I've just right now remembered kind of the key detail here. So what happened is that in the Korean War, um, the North Koreans captured a bunch of American soldiers and basically forced them to, like, uh, make public confessions like yes we've been bombing civilian targets or like yes like we killed all those like innocent guys or yes we were using chemical weapons or whatever um and so the line from the ca the kind of line in america i believe became okay those guys were brainwashed mm. this was so this is the invention of the concept of brainwashing was like okay well our boys wouldn't do that so what happens is that the communists have invented some kind of system of mind control. They've invented some way to force Americans to confess to false ideas. We have to do that as well. So, like, no one would ever... So did they think that the soldiers wouldn't uh, do the things they'd confess to or just that they wouldn't confess? Because surely they knew that what they were saying was true. I actually don't know. Yeah. Exactly. I just kind of know, like, in the, the general terms that... Like, it was kind of born out of this idea of, like, well, the communists obviously have some, like... Okay. Yeah. Like, no one would believe in communism if they hadn't been mind-controlled, basically. Okay. Um, um. So, yeah, so they dedicated, as Declan said, a huge amount of time and energy and resources into, like... They just, like... They famously, I think, bought a brothel in San Francisco um, and just gave all the clients LSD. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> they could, yeah, like I mean, there's what, no, yeah, just like, to find out what happens, I, I guess. Mean, yeah. 
like I think a, you got to start they, somewhere. Surely they knew what would happen. Though. Everyone would just freak out. <laughs> well, they this is like the fifties, right? Yeah, so they don't no, really know true. what LSD does. Yeah, that's like, there's a good not. Point. Like this is before like hippies. Like mm. this is before like acid culture went mainstream. God, imagine. So did the people? Did the brothel customers know they were getting it, or was it? Oh God, no one knew. No one <laughs> fucking. Oh, imagine that. Oh. Well, like there was, there was a long time. Like they also just gave each other LSD constantly. So for a long time, like if you went to a CIA party, <laughs> there was like a real chance that someone had just spiked the punch. Yeah, right. And like, like just like normal, like just these fucking like Washington bureaucrats. Someone would just slip them some LSD as a funny joke, just mm. to like see what would happen. I mean, um, that sounds fun. But <laughs> well, there was a guy who died. A guy called Frank Olson yeah. jumped out a window. Okay, at some that point. was going to be my next question. What's yeah. the deal with Frank Olson? I, I remember reading his Wikipedia article a while ago. All I know is that there's cons- like you know bigger kind of theories about this as well. But he was just like one of the doctors working on this program, and I think they just like gave him some LSD and he like jump out a window to his death in okay. a hotel. See, I always figured that like that you could take like psychedelics of any sort and then jump off a high thing to your death was like just a conspiracy theory fed to us by I, the yeah, CIA. I, I, gen- I don't know. Like <laughs> it's like it's that's very possible. Because I've never considered doing something that no. would hurt me like no, on no. on like you're high. You're not fucking dumb. Like, yeah. well, the other if thing anything, you're yeah. more conscious and being like, I do not want to hurt. Myself. I am on drugs. I absolutely need to be very careful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. responsible. Well, the other thing. So there's um, there's a book called Chaos by I think his name is Tom O'Neill. Um, this is the Manson thing. This is the Manson thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a guy who, um, what did he do? He was um, hired to write a story about Charles Manson. Um, in like 1999 and it was just like oh yeah like we'll have that in six weeks and he was like okay i'll just do a bit of digging 20 years later was just like i think mk ultra was involved in this (laughs) (laughs) and it's like it's a great book because it's just a really clear example of how you just go insane like he started digging and in very short order had like talked to everyone who was involved in like the manson murders and all of those people like oh yeah there was something really weird going on also, there was this guy called Reeve Whitson who was hanging around, who was definitely in the CIA, and then went and talked to, like, the wife and daughter of Reeve Whitson, and they were like, yeah, he was in the CIA, <laughs> and he was involved in, like, the Manson case. Jesus. Like, what do you mean hanging around? Like, he was part of the Manson family, or...? He was, like, just, like, present during the investigation after the fact. Okay. Was, like, just around... Like, right. people testified to, to seeing him around. Like, yeah. again, like, this is, you know, this kind of an example of me being like, you know, I read this book. I don't remember all the details. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> explain it. No, um, um, yeah. And he doesn't know this, like, this guy, you know, the conclusion of this book is like, yeah, something weird was happening. But, like, he doesn't know. Sure. Yeah, that's the thing. I remember listening to the Chapo episode mm. with, with him and similarly just getting hooked into the idea because I think he talked on that podcast about um, the kind of overwhelming evidence that Manson was a police informant. Yeah. Um, And so that is like quite satisfying in a way to be able to get that. But then you realize that's just one, but like, why was he a police informant? What was going on? What did he inform on? Exactly. Yeah. Like what was the point? (laughs) So there's this, my favorite kind of bit from this book is this guy whose name is, uh, okay. This guy called Dr. Lewis Jollyon West or Mm. Jolly West who is, and the, the part that it's, it's true definitely is that this guy was a doctor who worked on MKUltra mm-hmm. and that he was working on a project in San Francisco where he just set up like a hippie flop house 
and like invited hippies in and just like monitored their behavior ostensibly to kind of like find out about drugs. Um, and there was another like hippie research project just like up the street, basically in the Hyde Ashbury, which was a free clinic, which was also receiving funding from like, from a university that had some connection to MKUltra, um, which yeah, like it was a free clinic run by these doctors. That's uh, where Charles Manson would meet his parole officer. Mm. And Manson was part of this like experimental parole officer program that he had like gotten special dispensation from the state to do. Like he moved to San Francisco to do it against the terms of his parole. And then like the documentation about that is just missing. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a story about this guy, Jolly West. Um, He was one of the things that he did was that he met Jack Ruby after Jack Ruby had killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, it's all connected. (laughs) Like, so we came into like Jack Ruby's cell and like walked out again and was like, yeah, Jack Ruby is legally insane. He's definitely completely insane and definitely always was. Yeah, right. And the other, like, this is another great story that I can't, this is like, this story's only in chaos. I can't find like much about this everywhere else, but it did happen. Which is that Jolly West was working in an Air Force base, Lackland Air Force Base in the 50s. Um, This was an Air Force base where these guys who had been brainwashed in North Korea had, I think, come back to. It was like, like guys from there had been involved in that in some way. But like what they were doing there was they were doing research with LSD, like I think on these soldiers to like figure out what had gone on and like how and whether it could be reproduced um and so there was a case like at this air force base where um basically a a child was murdered like someone just found like a dead kid um and then they found like a soldier from the air force base just like wandering down the road covered in blood having like murdered a kid and then like jolly west like took this guy in and like interrogated him carefully and then like big chunks of the interrogation are missing Mm. and then like when he came out he was like yeah i did it fuck like which yeah like the book theorizes like yeah this was a question of like can we like brainwash people into doing things against their moral code yeah um basically which is like also what manson did it's yeah like i would recommend this book it's very scary yeah i want to read it Mm. it's crazy um, and so, so that's like a little bit, I guess we don't have that much time left. There's yeah. so much here, but I also, I kind of want to know like, yeah, what's been the CIA's main like, um, justification post the fall of the Soviet Union or have they even bothered really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this gets, I mean, it's so big and there's so much to talk about. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the CIA's kind of theme, like my research for this show kind of is very detailed up to about the sixties. It was a pretty explicitly like right-wing colonialist like pseudo-fascist institution up until then Mm. um and then after the cold war ends the cold war is like the justification for their existence um then i think they've been well i mean this is where you get into like 9-11 and like whether 9-11 was faked um Mm. i mean that's (laughs) i think the first time i ever just like found my brain cracking with the conspiracy theory is like we like early university and people had to give like persuasive speeches just like for the class was do a persuasive speech any subject and a korean student was just like 9-11 was faked <laughs> um like bush did 9-11 and just like 
king. Just like nailed the persuasive aspects of it as well. Just like super like reinforced it again and again. And I was like, fuck. Bush did 9-11. There's no other explanation for well, this. I think we'll be... So I guess like what we're seeing now, just to kind of bring it like home, is we're seeing the pivot to the woke CIA now. Mm. What we're seeing now is that the CIA are actually the good guys and they're fighting the bad guy, Donald Trump, who's in league with the Russians. And the woke CIA are going to save our democracy from that. Isn't there, I could be totally wrong about this, but isn't there like the first female head of torture at the CIA? At the moment yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the first female head. So like the the last head was Pompeo, who's now Secretary of State, I think maybe. so. That sounds right. So he was the last head. He he came through the Tea Party movement as well. Right. Um, and and yeah, the, the lady who's now the first head of the CIA was like was the one who was like doing all the renditioning and black sites during the like mm. like the the height of the like the war on terror kind of mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like there's yeah, there's a book called Legacy of Ashes which I read for this and kind of getting a lot of this stuff from which is interesting because what it is is a liberal history of the CIA. And so his thesis on the CIA is that we need a CIA and that, like, we should have an institution that does what the CAA does, but that the CAA has consistently failed to do their job of, like, protecting American democracy. And he's very explicitly in his theory that, like, he sees everything that the CAA have kind of ever done as a mistake and, like, an accident or, like, the result of incompetence. Mm. Um, and he talks about... So he, one of the things that he talks about is uh, Bin Laden, And the way he tells this story is like, okay, so the CIA in like 1999, they spent that whole year just like blowing shit up. Basically, they blew up um, like a medicine factory in the Sudan. Um, They blew up the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. They just like were constantly fucking up and getting like the wrong information and just being like, destroy it um, and fucking that up. So what he says is, um, okay, the CIA knew where Bin Laden was for like at least a year before the attacks and they knew that he was going to like stage a major terrorist attack and they had him like in their sights and kid of like just like dropped a bomb on him and killed him like five, se- like a bunch of separate times. But they didn't do that because like they'd had a bunch of fuck ups and they were too concerned about doing exactly the same thing. Mm. <laughs> and so but uh, why but, i guess why would they be concerned like there's no yeah. oversight <laughs> yeah well that's no you know like this is i haven't researched like this one as much but like i just read that in the book and was like well or like you know this is where we get to the question of like oh was he you know just working like, yeah was it inside job or mm, like a, he was a, like I've heard Bin Laden described as Bin Laden's like a money man like he's from a rich saudi family and like his job was just like fund terrorism, basically. He was like a like a venture capitalist for terrorism. That's my understanding of Bin Laden. And like, it's not, you know, like a like the Bush, like yeah, like um, just George H. W. Bush, like was head of the CIA. I didn't even realize until recently he was the head of the CIA at one point. Whoa. Was the head of the CIA? Okay. And had very close personal connections to the Saudis. And to the Bin Laden family in particular. Those two families yeah. are really close. Whoa. And the Bin Laden family's really, like, yeah, the Bin Laden family's really closely connected to the Saudis. It's really easy to see how they could have personally just been like, oh. And also, like, got to keep in mind here, the CIA, it's a spy agency. What it does 
is recruit people who are ostensibly working against it. Mm. Like that's what it that's what it does. That's what it's, it's for. A spy. Like <laughs> that's what spies are. Yeah. Whoa. So like <laughs> it's not though. fuck. <laughs> yeah. This goes deep. <laughs> um, but yeah, like so. I mean to you know actually kind of answer the broader question here. Um, look, the CIA like. We saw, yeah, like, first a pivot to we're fighting Islamic terrorism. Right. After the fall of the Soviet Union. That has only kind of partially worked. People aren't really scared of Islamic terrorism anymore. Like, they did hugely benefit from 9-11. They got, like, a fuckload of extra funding and they got to do everything they wanted. Surprising. But now the new enemy is uh, Donald Trump. Right. Basically. And this is a really interesting pivot where, like, if you look at kind of the stories they're telling and, like... Yeah, the way that like Joe Biden kind of talks and Joe Biden loves Joe Biden loves to talk about restoring America's status abroad, restoring American leadership. And like you kind of get the clear sense here that yeah, like the new enemy now is authoritarianism or like populism or like the Russians and like the foreign dictators and like whatever the latest challenges to yeah. the liberal hegemony. Yeah, yeah, and it's really just like that's it. It's like it's a just some way of saying like the new enemy is the threat to liberal hegemony, but it means that the CIA has kind of taken on this like woke aspect where it's <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> One of the things I kind of really noticed was like a lot of the people kind of like talking about the church like, the church report, which I think was, like, one of the reports after Watergate where it was clear that, like, yep. the CIA was working with, with the, like, the Republican presidency to, for political goals, was to, like, be like, the CIA has gone a bit rogue, let's kind of, like, reel it back in a little bit. And I guess one of the things I was kind of thinking about in regards to that was how much, like, how much the CIA as institution is institutionally separate from from the US government. Like, so much of what it was doing... Like during, like like the Iran Contra affair, which you know, which which H Bush was in, like up to his um, ankles, I don't know, um, was was selling selling drugs in South America, like ex- ex- importing drugs from South America to sell in the American markets in order to fund, um, you know, death squads, etc. And they obviously have like their own revenue streams completely separate from mm. the US government. Like they're institutionally so powerful and so well funded that they 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 really exist outside of any kind of like governmental context. And mm. that's one of the really interesting like aspects of like how rogue and what kind of politics and things they're pushing for that I think's weird. Yeah, they sell a fuckload of drugs and this is the ties to organized crime, that's one of those things that goes back to World War Two, like they worked very closely with the mafia in like the invasion of Italy, um, and yeah, like that was. This has always been a huge thing: is these like off the books like revenue sources. Mm. But it's like, I don't know. I, I, it's really. I mean, I guess we have no idea what they're doing now. Like, how would we? Like, no. um, Epstein stuff. Yeah, I don't know. That might even be a little bit outside of their wheelhouse. They're probably doing something kind of more and I, geopolitical. I yeah i do think that like trump coming into the trump coming into the white house has really kind of scrambled everyone's mm. brains here because i don't think that the cia liked donald trump no no well he wasn't the don't. institutional pick right like no, the yeah. institutional exactly. republican party wasn't interested in trump the institutional democratic party obviously wasn't like 
I just Googled CIA Black Lives Matter to see if they'd put out any kind of statement. <laughs> I couldn't find anything, but I'm sure they did. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that. Um, cool. Well, yeah, we are probably pushing the limits for uh, episode length here, but it's, it's been a good chat. Anything you wanted, you guys wanted to say before we wrap up? Um, I, I found out that, um, you know, John Pilger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, John Pilger was... Uh, personally present at the assassination of bobby kennedy it's crazy <laughs> i didn't know that until i read your article which is insane yeah like, <laughs> um, john pilger come on floodcast explain yeah yeah, yeah we want a first hand account yeah I we should know actually everything. like think about doing that yeah. <laughs> but yeah like someone email his wife <laughs> um yeah i don't know like in terms of conclusions um yeah like i Look, you can definitely see how conspiracy theories are forming this kind of, like, new liberalism. Like, yeah, it's kind of a broad theory of mine that there is this new kind of reactionary liberalism that has kind of formed in the wake of, like, Trump particularly, and that it's defining itself against conspiracy theories and against Trump and also against us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that puts the... Like, you are also seeing the emergence and, I think, greater popularity of the kind of left conspiracy thing that's in a more ambiguous and kind of ironic position. Yeah. Dekas, anything? Any um, last thoughts? Just to, like, like the, the sheer amount of the scale of being watched from the ASIO files was really very interesting to me. I just think we you, you were all being watched. Yeah, yeah. are we? I, I actually sometimes wonder about that. Um, whether ASIO considers the South Brisbane Greens important enough to surveil. Well, like, like based on, like, who and how much they surveilled, like, yeah, absolutely, they surveil everyone. Like, like they're so over-resourced, and especially in the context of, like, that was when they used to have to get a person to do it. Now yeah, they just, like, true. just use the internet. And also we publish our, like, opinions Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they don't have to work very hard. Tell your friends. There's probably, uh, like, one of our 80 listeners is, is, is yeah, an ASIO like, agent. That's the kind of, like, last thing here is that, like the thing that you kind of makes it like stretch the imagination is how well funded this is and how like there's always more of it than you think. And that's the kind of thing like that's, I guess, the aspect of it that means that you actually can't dismiss conspiracy theories like entirely is the fact that like this clear is clearly like not nothing like there is more like central organization and just more money in it and that they are fixated on even really small details. Like, I think ultimately, like, the easier thing is, like, a lot of those guys are also, they're paranoid about the left, and they think that the left is kind of much more powerful and dangerous than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like... A couple of the reports that, like, the Gough Whitlam government put into, like, the easier thing, the like, the, the judge's kind of conclusion was... Like they just gather information just because, like, just yeah. to find out, like maybe it, maybe it'll come in handy later, and that's that's the the institutional culture of like that's all we really need. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that probably yeah. about does it. I was gonna maybe our next episode. I wanted to ask you, Matt, about the conspiracy theory about Shakespeare not writing his own plays. <laughs> no, that what? one's bullshit. I know. I wanted to know about that. Oh, the other thing I wanted to throw in at the end here is that um, we're gonna do a podcast. Uh, oh, yeah. at some point about housing and about rent about how fucked landlords are um and so or the bank and your mortgage yeah so we want to get stories if you've got a story uh, about having a really fucked landlord um i had a landlord who was in the mob 
Um, you're going to have to wait for next episode to find <laughs> out about that. But yeah, if you have a story about um, a really fucked landlord, uh, get in touch with, I guess, at our Twitter account. Our Twitter yeah. account. I don't know if our DMs are open, but I'll try yeah. and open them. I um, also have a landlord saga, which I'll be more than happy to yeah. recount in full on the pod. Um, uh, <laughs> and yeah, we'll talk about it on the air. Yeah, sounds good. Day. Yeah, cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.